0: Hi, everyone. Um this is Angie calling in from Shanghai. Um this week we have Dia um, and David from the Queen's Museum of Art. Um David is the Director of External Affairs at the museum, and Dia is the designer and new media special, new media specialist uh, of uh, the QMA. So um, I'm gonna start. Uh, with um, asking these two experts to give us a brief introduction on themselves.
1: Okay. Well, hi. This is David. I just wanted to thank you guys for including us in this program. I know that even like three or four years ago, this wouldn't even be a topic for discussion, so it's nice to see that people are on the forefront of this. Um, Just to give you an overview maybe of the museum in general, um, so we're located in Queens, New York, which is one of the five boroughs of New York. And Queens is really known for its tremendous ethnic diversity. It's the most diverse locale in the country, and you know there are you know more than a hundred languages spoken here, and people from 138 countries at last count. And that has, says a lot about what our programming entails, and about even our overall philosophy. The museum tries to be as you know, inclusive as possible, and that means doing programming in all you know a, a very vast variety of languages. We have a very strong program for um, people with disabilities, both adults and children, called Art Access. Uh, all of our programming is free of charge or by suggested admission. So what we try to do is remove all obstacles and to build a larger community with the idea that we want to. Um, Really have some cross-pollination of cultures, experiences, ideas, and that carries itself into the artists we represent here in our exhibitions, the young artists that we offer opportunities to, and all of the programming from our public events programs to our educational outreach. And over the past few years, we've tried to increase our, um, you know, our quote-unquote community engagement by... Using um, digital media, and that's where Dia has come in, um, and she's really the mastermind behind our current social media um, strategy.
2: I am. I started at the museum about a year ago, and I was working in the curatorial department doing a fellowship, um, and mainly I was researching Indian contemporary modern art for an upcoming exhibition, and I kind of transitioned into the social media. a job opened up, and I. Build it, And um, we've really been working on figuring out how to increase our viewership with kind of this idea that an endpoint could just be someone who views us on Facebook or Twitter and that is as good as someone coming into the museum or what we can do to really get our name out there and and share our our mission with the rest of the art world and just people that might be
1: interested. Yeah, I think one of the... um, One of the unusual things about the museum and about the environment in which we exist is that, as I said, Queens is so diverse that by becoming, like, hyper-local, we're actually becoming more international because we can do projects with, you know, the Shanghainese community in Queens that will activate Shanghainese artists in Shanghai, or we can, you know, concentrate on, you know, a a musical group from... You know Colombia, and that will be a way to activate the local Colombian community. And because of that, we realized that we are able to reach out to people that may never visit the museum, but who could still benefit from the programs that we're offering. And what better way to include them in the conversation than to um, to actually include them in the conversation using digital media and social media? And I think that we've we've Used all of our various online efforts, both you know, to draw attendance to the museum itself, which every museum is always trying to do. But that's not our sole goal. It's just to really bring more people into the conversation that our exhibitions and our programming, you know, start, but that we don't want to end when the shows close.
0: Right. Thank you. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned the local Chinese community because um, I'm currently based in Shanghai. So yeah, it must be very interesting if like, I'm like in Queens and, you know, there's a local museum doing so much for um, a community that is supposedly from very far away. So uh, my first question would be, um, can you, can you guys give us like an overview of um, the QMA strategy with using new media for marketing and fundraising?
1: Sure. Uh, well, you know, just picking up on what what we were just saying that, you know, we use it in, the, in a number of ways. You know, first is just to build exposure, so on an exhibition level or when we have a, a mon, you know, a major public event coming up, we like to, you know, first, you know, post stuff on the website obviously and use our monthly e-blast, our Q mail as it's called, to get that word out. But then as we get into a little closer we try to you know put up Facebook posts and get people talking about it there, and then you know dia actually starts conversations on Twitter and tries to get everything out there. but the idea is also to um begin conversations about it, not just start talking about, hey, this is going on at the museum but if mm-hmm. if a certain band is going to be playing at the museum in a month, but right now they're playing someplace else, we try to build awareness of them playing someplace else first so that it's not just about us. We don't, want, we don't want all of this just to be about feeding the museum, but really to be feeding the discussion.
2: Right. And we do, I think that the main goal is to create context for everything we do. So, like, for instance, right now we have an exhibition up um, on photographs of Detroit, So instead of just talking about this photographer, Andrew Moore, and just talking about his photographs in this exhibition, we try to engage in a larger conversation about Detroit and issues of urbanism, and try to include more people in terms of urban planning, architecture, and artists, and just to increase the dialogue and increase the conversations that we can have with different institutions online. And I think that really helps helps drive people in, because people are using these social media outlets as a way to gain information, and not just to, for self-promotion or to figure out what our events are or or ways that we can fundraise. I think it's like the most useful way for it to be used is for, you know, getting information from people and not really soliciting people to, to come out here or to do what we want them to do.
1: Right. And I think, you know, that's, that is the core of the marketing side of it. You know, the fundraising side, I have to admit, we haven't been all that successful with, with the exception of, you know, one or two efforts. Um, for fundraising, we found that people still want to have some more personal reaction or interaction with, you know, with the museum. And that said, though, we, we did do, uh, um, I guess it was 2009, which is, you know, when the world was in the midst of its, you know, economic collapse. Um, We were looking at the potential every year we have an annual fundraiser and we thought that maybe people wouldn't be as apt to come out to a fundraiser. So we decided to do an online non-gala, which was essentially grew out of our own, um, I'm not sure, uncertainty of how much money we could stand to lose if nobody bought tickets to our, our actual event. So here we were trying to cut down on the operational costs and really just had an, a virtual gala where there were all kinds of events online. The director of the museum and a performance artist did um, an ongoing, like, it's almost like a variety show. And um, and had uh, Twitter competitions going on in which we were giving stuff away. And we had online sponsors. We had, um, you know, YouTube interviews with the honorees that year that people could see. And a whole bunch of uh, online contests and stuff. And what we realized is that at the end of the day, we ended up netting just as much money as we normally would at our actual gala. So while we realized it was a you know a one-off event, we did then see the potential for fundraising online. And however, you know we really haven't seen that same kind of support come out on um, on a more regular level when it comes to soliciting. Uh, any kind of fundraising. What we do see, however, is that it's very effective at sharing information about some sort of fundraising events, whereas people, you know, this coming weekend we have a Halloween-themed family fundraiser called the Spooktacular, and disseminating information about that via Facebook and Twitter and, you know, web blasts has actually helped the uh, – to get, you know, mainstream editorial coverage for it, which then has helped people come back to the website where they can then make their online donations. Go ahead.
2: That's actually exactly the way we use fundraising now, just as, as a way to promote our events. And then that drives a little bit of actual donations and ticket sales. But generally we found that that comes more from, like, word of mouth and you know, committee members telling their friends and, and less so from the online community.
1: Right. And, you know, on a on a different level, we have found that when we have major donors for big programs, you know, corporate sponsorship and stuff like that, that it does help us to really uh, strengthen the relationship when we can say that we are working on online um outreach together you know we we just did an exhibition a few weeks ago that opened up which worked with scholastic books and the, and we had a you know one of the artists of one of their new words and the graphic novels or whatever it's called a, a novel in works and pictures right by a guy named brian selznick it's called wonderstruck a lovely book for people nine to twelve or something like that But the fact that we were partnering with Scholastic, who has their own following, allowed us to get the word out through their channels and allowed them to feel like we were introducing them to their products to a new audience through our online channels. And that was a very symbiotic relationship that I think left both people happy and was really fundamental in us getting as large a crowd as we did to that event.
0: Right. Um, so from like the examples that you've given and what what you guys said about, I kind of feel like that you guys are using social media mainly for creating um, content or context for um, things that is happening in a museum or disseminating information and raising awareness for these programs, et cetera, right. et cetera. Right. So um, how, how well do you think these uh, web tools are helping you guys to um, – Um, how how are they incorporated into uh, the physical exhibits or in-person programs besides uh, being um, the information dissemination and raising awareness part?
2: Um, I think that's something that we're working on a lot moving forward and how we can integrate the virtual space into the physical space. And I think that will mean things like QR codes in the galleries where we can link to our YouTube videos with artists and... And, you know, putting hashtags on all of our printed materials. And I think it's going to be um, vital to keeping our, our social network growing.
1: Yeah, right now there there isn't anything. And to be honest, we've, Dia and I, have wanted to do this since she began. So this is going on a year. And it's just been difficult to convince the curatorial department, and this is something that I'm sure a lot of colleagues will find, um, that this is an important element. I mean, one of the things we really wanted to do, because it is so in keeping with our mission, is to help deliver more personal interaction with the artists. And, you know, it's as simple as sitting down with an artist during the installation of their show after it's just opened and to have them talk about, you know, one or two pieces of work or, or their own vision for three minutes, then having a QR code, and then, you know, even doing it, one of our things that we really would love to do is to have that artist, if they are not from you know, from an English speaking country, to do it both in English and their native language so that people can identify with them if they're not English speakers. And that's something that is still on our plate and we're really gonna do that, but it's taken a while for us to get some of our curatorial colleagues to uh, to, to really push it with the artists and say, listen, this is only going to take five minutes, but it's going to be very important to the way people experience your exhibition. But
2: yeah, I think it's also this this idea that the more you put into a gallery space, the more you take away from the exhibition. Is this this ongoing dialogue and curatorial? Um, whereas you know things have changed so much that people are are online and always looking for more information quicker. But I think a big obstacle that we have also is that our our viewers come from a lot of different places and speak a lot of different languages. So everything we do, we have to be mindful of of not just having it in English, so it's actually accessible to everybody.
1: Right, and I think that you know, I guess you know, twenty five, thirty years ago, when the audio guides, or I guess more than that, maybe when the audio guides were first introduced, there was you know a little bounce back. You know, years later, saying how much do we want to tell people how to interpret a show, and you know, our you know our vision of this isn't to tell people how to see the exhibition, but to make them feel as if for a few minutes at least they had a a tour of an exhibition by the artist, and to create this intimacy that you know you don't always get in a big white gallery with a few pieces of work on the wall, or even that you know, well-written wall labels can introduce. And I think that there's nothing like walking through a gallery with an artist having them explain their work. And if we can, you know, pass that on through a QR code and somebody just has to stare down at their at their iPhone for two minutes, I think that that's a, a great benefit to the audience. Right. And
2: it's this idea of, like, more behind-the-scenes information
1: and transparency in, in our museum. Right. Because... Until you work in a museum, you also have no idea what goes into the creation of an exhibition. And if we could guess, you know, an artist to talk about putting the show together while they're actually putting the show together, and then the audience gets to look at that while they're in the finished product, I think it helps create a more cohesive understanding of the process. And, you know, and it all comes back to creating the context, not only for the artwork itself but for the visitor experience.
3: Can you can you talk a little bit about your editorial process, I guess both um, you know, are you on exhibition teams from the beginning and also if there's something that you want to tweet about or post on Facebook, is there a process for you to to coordinate with your colleagues and how, how does that how is that evolving for you?
1: Right. Well, right now, you know, we're only starting to to get involved from the beginning of the exhibition planning. Um, however, you know, we're, it's, it's interesting because it's completely one-sided. You know, Dia and I are the only ones right now that are thinking of ways to use this and to, to get the artists and the exhibitions more cohesively involved in the social media plan. So it is one of those things where we ask, is it okay if we take a photograph or videotape the artist, uh, you know, installing their piece? And then it has to obviously come from the artist. We don't want to expose the artistic process if the artist doesn't believe in this. If they just want it to, you know, appear as if it just appears. Um, but
2: uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it's it's something that we're also working on is getting involved from the beginning and making it more of a, a you know systematic approach to doing social social media. Whereas when they start to plan an ex exhibition were involved from the beginning, so we can be involved in, like, their reading list, and their, you know, just so that we also gain extra content, um, but that is, because it's such a new field, it's something that we're constantly trying to figure out also.
1: Yeah, and, you know, the thing that's, you know, that's curious about is that our curatorial team is pretty young, yet they are not the types to really... I guess they, they're just missing the generation gap between people who would actually go on Facebook and use Twitter and understand the importance of, of blogging about shows as the shows are being created. So it's it's kind of on us to create a, a real shift in the paradigm back there. You know, they th- still think, I think, as us, just a vehicle to get the word out about the show and not as a way to... Um, increase the actual experience that a visitor gets when they visit the show. But it's something that we're making progress on on a daily basis. So, you know, we're encouraged that especially, you know, not the next exhibition, but in the I guess in the winter season when we open our biennial, Queens International, which is a, a really huge um, collection of younger artists that there be huge opportunities for those artists to get involved, for their friends to get involved, for us to create interesting ways for people to interact with the shows that they might not have. And just to really capitalize on the fact that this is a generation of artists who are using this in, in their own self-promotion, but more so in their own lives as a way to communicate with their friends, with you know people who they think they are interested in. So, that's a, our hugest opportunity to show what we can do. And then hopefully after that, it'll be easier to get, you know, involved from the first step.
0: Yeah. Right. Um, you've mentioned that um, what you guys are doing with social media are often perceived as a tool to promote the programs or shows, but uh, instead of like really enriching the whole museum experience, so um, how do you guys uh, usually define or measure ROI through, um, you know, social media advertising or marketing efforts?
2: Well, I think that is really tricky because one of our goals, like we said earlier, is that if we are doing something that engages, like, you know, a Colombian community and some people in Colombia are visiting us online, to us, that's what meets our goal in itself because they've experienced the Queen's Museum in some way. So, it's, and, you know, on another level, of how many people do we physically get in the museum from social media. But they're two very different questions and they're two very different goals, but they both, you know, contribute to our, our overall experience in the Queen's Museum.
1: Right. It's it's not such a quantifiable thing in, in our minds. And Dee and I were actually talking about this specific question before we got on the phone. And two weeks ago, if you let us go off off script here a little we, two weeks ago we were at a i guess it was a Kennedy Center discussion Bloomberg Inc discussion about social media and this guy um, Gary Vanderchuk who has written a book called The Thank You Economy which is all about his experiences in social media and he's a big social media consultant and he you know is, is you know like a 35 year old guy who created a huge empire out of selling wine from his parents liquor store online and he was talking about a client of his who asked about the return on investment and he said that you know there is no way to describe it in certain situations there is no return on investment it's like what's the return on investment of your mother you know your mother did everything to make you who you are yet you can't necessarily highlight how something she did at point a has contributed to where you are at point z so it's just you know we don't even think about return on investment in in you know the traditional term it's more anecdotal it's more about uh participation if we get one great comment that somebody you know sprung forth from one of our events or from something that we tweeted or if three people come from you know a community that we had never reached out to that's tremendous for us but also if nobody shows up at an event that we've been tweeting about forever but there is an online conversation, or if there's a conversation we don't even know about you know in you know a community we don't know about, then that also is really important to us. so it's not a it's not something that we can measure by how many people come in or how many people retweet our posts or how many people do anything. I mean that said, we are very excited that in the past two weeks, five people have taken us up on our free t-shirt Foursquare offer. but that's just because. You know, We're happy to see that people are actually using Foursquare when they come here. It's not necessarily about a return on investment from our standpoint.
2: Right. I think fundamentally these social media tools are for building relationships with people and building long-lasting relationships. So if they hear about one event we're doing and they come once or they talk about it once, that's kind of not, not ideal for us. We want someone who's going to really fall in love with the Queens Museum and stick with us for a while.
3: I'm going to push you guys on this a little bit just because I I totally understand where you're coming from with your answer and I feel the same way as a social media practitioner myself but at the end of the day I'm asked to report some kind of metric to show that what I'm doing is valuable are are you being asked for some kinds of statistics and in that case what what is it that you report on
1: uh well I mean Yes and no. We, I mean, at times we will put forth, hey, you know, we had 164,000 unique visitors and they came from 163 countries on our website. But other than, you know, nobody's ever coming up to us and saying, how many people retweeted that, you know, that thing about, you know, project X, Y, or Z, you know, or the other thing that we're really bad at here and, you know, ashamed to admit it, but also not ashamed to admit it. We're terrible at, like, surveying people and following up and asking people when they're in the museum, how many of you have heard about, you know, this event because you read about it on our Facebook posts or, you know, because you saw how many people retweeted it. But, you know, like I said, we're having this event this weekend, this Halloween thing, and, you know, Dia was able to finally ask people, you know, did you hear about it from social media, and that, did that cause you to buy a ticket? And some of the people said yes, and we sent that right along to our development director, and, you know, and they they love that information.
2: And the other good thing about it is that we can always say, oh, but we have 23,000 followers on Twitter, which is such a large number that most people are happy with that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so. I mean,
1: there was, somebody did something, um, forget who it was it may have been like museum nerd did something a few months ago about your font size which is the ratio of uh, Twitter followers to actual museum visitors and we've got like a pretty big font size because we've got twenty three thousand people following us on Twitter and you know barely two hundred thousand visitors actually coming to the museum so that ratio is you know both it's a point of pride from the social media side but it's also Interesting and kind of frustrating, how can we translate that into more people coming to the museum if that, you know, is indeed one of our main priorities, which it is and it isn't. But the other thing, you know, that you're asking is, you know, is there ever that direct question? And I think that the first time that we really did something that showed us the impact and that, I think, bought us some time when it comes to the quantification of it is – Uh, For the opening of Queens International in 2009, we did, like, tremendous outreach through Facebook. And we, for the first and only time, I think, really did RSVPs to an event on Facebook. And we had, you know, like 1,200 people RSVP'd purely on that. And they came from, you know, three different states. And it was, like, the coldest evening in January. And the party was, like, going all night here. And that was something that really convinced the director that, wait a second, this social media thing might actually um, be important to getting people to the museum. And from then on, he really hasn't wavered. He's been truly behind it. Um, You know, it would have been a perfect opportunity when our last social media person left for him to say, you know, this is a perfect time for reevaluation. Let's see if we really need this position. But he said, no doubt we need to fill this. And if anything put more resources towards it. No, that's that said, um, you know, our, the museum's marketing budget is like 4% of the institutional budget. And if you were to compare the social media budget to the overall, it's probably 1%. And, you know, a lot of institutions have people that are just doing this. And as you can see, you know, DIA is our digital media specialist but she's also doing design stuff and also helping out on some other things so certainly we don't have the infrastructure that maybe would allow us to propel the social media to the next level but we're going to do it anyway because we have no choice.
3: I'm going to uh, ask one more question then I'll let Angie (laughs) get back to her questions but sure, your relationship to your local community. I mean, I work at the Smithsonian. Our our goal is to reach out to the nation, and we actually don't target our local audience all that much via social media, um, because we realize that such a huge percentage of our followers, for example, on Twitter or Facebook are not local, that we try to talk about um, history in general and not necessarily about what is happening at the museum that you can only see at the museum. So I'm curious, Do you, first of all, I guess, do you know how many of your your physical visitors are repeat visitors and how many of them are local, and then comparing that with your social media folks, do you have a sense of how how many of them or what percentage are local?
1: Well, I know that of our of our physical audience um, you know sixty percent of the audience comes from Queens itself, and you know if you were to extend that to the five boroughs of New York. You know, 93% of our audience comes from New York City, so that's a tremendous local following. Um, when it looks at when we look online and you know the social media, what do we have? I'm not sure.
2: Um, I'm not sure of the, the exact percentage, but I know as with most you know institutions, social media, our followers come from all over, and they're not just local. And a lot of our our local community, that the 60% that comes pretty frequently. Um, you know they're of different backgrounds. They may or may not be on Twitter they it's a um, you know it's unclear how tech savvy that community right. is also. So we try to do the same thing in terms of reaching out to a, a national international audience. But like David said in the beginning, when we reach out to an international audience, we're also looking out to a local community in Queens. so it's kind of a different. It's a different dynamic for us because it is that global local that kind of broadens and localizes our audiences at the same time.
1: Right, and I think that by nature, a lot of the, you know, our mandate, you know, as a museum really is to embrace um, the history of our site, which is, you know, our site, the building we're in was built for the 1939 World's Fair. It was the original home of the United Nations General Assembly. It was again used in nineteen sixty four for the World's Fair, which had this theme of peace through understanding and By virtue of the fact that we're in this hyper diverse community, you know we don't um we do a lot of stuff that targets um, specific ethnic communities that may be right outside our door, but maybe you know thousands of miles away and I think that we try to keep the the conversation broad enough that it can appeal to anybody. But also, you know, if you do live just outside of the museum's doors, that it'll be enough to bring you in here. But certainly to not exclude anybody from the conversation, be it online or within the museum itself. Does that help?
3: Yes, thank you.
1: Okay. Okay. Back to you, Angie. Yeah.
0: um... The next couple of questions um, will be more on how social media is integrated into the bigger marketing picture. Um, first of all, what percentage of your operating budget is devoted to marketing, and what percentage of that budget um, right. is devoted to social media?
1: Sure. So 4% of our overall budget is uh, is devoted to marketing, and of that, 25% is for social media, so that means that of our entire institutional budget, one percent is going to social media, and that one percent is probably um, like half of Dia's salary. Mm-hmm. Is what it. The
2: good thing about social media is that it's
1: free. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's one of those things where, you know, you can't not try things because because it doesn't cost anything to do it. It's just time, and the fact is that Dia is so immersed in all the different goings-on in the museum that she could easily use every single social media platform because it's the same information. She's just repackaging it for different uses and different audiences. But definitely the short answer is not enough of the budget is being given towards marketing and not enough of the marketing budget is being given towards social media.
0: Right. Okay. So when, when you guys have a new exhibit or program, um then and and you come with a marketing plan for this particular program. How much of it is um in social media um overlaps with um the other like standard uh or traditional media like t v or print or sure. um outdoor that kind of thing yeah well you know,
1: at yeah, the, well, mm-hmm. the end I try to create a um, a unified plan that includes everything. So when it comes to the release of information, it's all done, you know, coincides perfectly or as close to perfectly as we can. Um, But what we've been able to find is that we just use different routes to reach different people. So one of the most interesting things is that while, you know, the traditional media may not be uh, aware of our programming and exhibitions, that D is able to communicate with the social media people at, at print publications, at radio stations, at TV stations, and get the information to them that way, and then it somehow, you know, gets through the editorial process, because so many more people are trusting the Twitter feed of a magazine, rather than going out to wait for the magazine to come out every week or every month, so in that regard, it's, you know, it's perfectly dovetailing, um, right?
2: And there's been a lot of instances where like a direct message to a magazine or to someone I know who does a Twitter feed somewhere else has led to a blog post on their site, has led to a, you know, print listing. Has led so there are a lot of, you know, there's a lot of overlap in that regard. And in a lot of ways, keep just getting a tweet from someone else, like a few tweets, it kind of holds the same weight. If not, it reaches more people.
1: Right. And I kind of think that, uh, you know, today's magazine readers and, you know, people who are watching TV, they don't necessarily trust the media as much because they they understand the machine that goes into getting, you know, a, an article placed in a magazine, whereas they think more that there's a more personal connection. They're following the same Twitter feed every day, and they're reading blog posts by the same person, that there's almost a personal connection there, and they trust that person's. Um, judgment, and it's it, it from our standpoint, it's more like a third-party endorsement of what we're doing. And you know, if if your friend tells you to do something, you're more likely to do it than if you just read about it in the newspaper. And that's why, you know, Dia is really concentrating on getting that blog post and getting that person out of magazine to do it, rather than just to wait for an article to come out.
0: Right. I think I think you're right. Like one of the great things about social media is that like how people can use it to develop like really trusting relationship with you is much more personal than reading an ad um, in a magazine or on TV and, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, from like on social media, you're creating, um, interacting and creating a relationship that is um not something the traditional media can offer. And that leads to my next question. Like, How do you make sure that um, the messaging um, you have on these social media platform matches with what people will experience inside a museum? Because like, if there is a discrepancy there, then the, the trusting relationship is going to be damaged and it's going to be worse than you know yeah. receiving a message from traditional media
1: to begin yeah. with. Well, I think you know. First of all, we don't try to oversell or overhype anything. Everything is pretty. You know, if you follow if you follow Dia's stuff, it's all done with a very honest um, tone. And I think in that regard, you know, we all believe in what in what we're doing here. But we're not trying to overinflate it, and we're just trying to again, we're trying to offer context. So it's not as if. It's a sales pitch to try to get you in here under false pretense. And, you know, we're just providing the discussion. And if you like the discussion, then you're going to like what we're showing in the galleries or in our event spaces because those are additions to that discussion.
2: And even if you don't like the discussion, if you have something to add in the opposite way, we want to hear. (laughs) You know, it's like we're just trying to create a dialogue online. Right. And that, you know, fundamental of social media is, is honesty, is that honesty. We're not trying to tell you that we're bigger, shinier, we're buying more than something else. We're just trying to tell you what we have here and trying to figure out what you think about that. And,
1: right. You know. And I think that one of the great things about the art world, at least the way we see it, you know, we don't see other museums as competition, but as colleagues in the field. And You know, if there's another museum that's doing a show that's somewhat pertinent to the discussions that are taking place, you know, in our museum and in in everything we're producing, we're going to include them in in this conversation. I mean, that's what – I guess that's what community is all about, and I think that that is a little different in the corporate world. Um, I know it's very different in the corporate world where, you know, if you're making a pair of jeans and your jeans have a a great new tint and somebody else is coming out with new jeans – and theirs is pretty similar, you're not going to say, hey, and also making indigo jeans is this manufacturer, because all you care about is the profit. We care mm-hmm. about the actual discussion and, and the building of a community. And I think that's something that needs to be understood across the art world. Um, and, you know, there have been instances where the Queen's Museum has gone up in you know, had Twitter battles against other museums, which some people think are hostile, but I, they're all in good fun. And the more I think we can get people involved in discussions about art, about the contemporary culture, about any of the things that we try to address in our programming, I think the better off everybody will be. And like Dia said, and I think this leads into another one of your questions, that if there is something negative said, or you know doesn't necessarily jibe with what we're, what, how we feel. You know, we're not going to censor that. We need that to be included. This whole idea of the museum as an open forum translates very easily to the social media world where anybody has a voice. And I think that that's essential to maintain that. You know, we really have to include everybody. As soon as you shut somebody down, you've, you know, you've really shot yourself in the foot, and that's terrible.
0: Right, right. Um, okay, Okay. from the QMA website, we see that you guys are using quite a lot of different social media platforms like um, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Flickr, just a, a, a number of them. How successful do you think they are uh, driving visitors to the museum's website and ultimately to the museum itself? And do you define like specific goals for each of these media and maybe for different audiences as well?
2: um there I would say that they are incredibly successful in driving people to our website I would say that they drive people to our website more than most other platforms um, and we do have different different goals for different different venues I mean our Twitter is really more of a conversation it's the most conversational that we get online our Facebook is just you know by virtue of the layout of Facebook is a little less conversational and a little more about posting things that, you know, press that we've gotten shows and events that we're doing as well as like articles that relate to those. It's more about just posting things and seeing what comments come and responding to those comments. And our YouTube and Vimeo is where we can put you know, videos of what goes on here and we drive people to those videos with Twitter and
1: Facebook. Right, and the other thing is that we use those more as tools just for gathering stuff and sharing, um, less conversation. I mean, Vimeo and YouTube. Vimeo allows us to do things that we can't do on YouTube when it comes to posting the video of an entire lecture or something like that. But also, we encourage we encourage other people who are visiting the museum or participating in our events to share. On Vimeo and on YouTube and on Flickr, their own experiences through video and through photographs, and that's a, a great way for us to include them in the process and to make them more active participants. I mean, I think a lot of people think that going to a museum is a passive, a passive, uh, passive event or whatever, however, and a passive experience. But by saying, you know, when you come visit the museum and and you go through this show. We want you to take as many photos as you can and post them there. Or when you go do your own thing, after you've seen the show, like right now, as Dia said, we have this show up about Detroit and about how Detroit is crumbling and these beautiful photographs of a terrible situation. And we want people to go out and take photographs in New York City and capture things like that and put it on Flickr and to share that experience with us. So there are different opportunities that exist in there. Photo contests are very easy for museums to put together if they have someplace like Flickr to have everybody post it. And the same thing, you know, we did a, a project, a huge performance art piece um, two years ago with an artist named Duke Riley, R-I-L-E-Y. It's called Those About to Die Salute You. And I encourage everybody to go onto YouTube and look for this because we really implored as many visitors, participants as possible to this event to, uh, to shoot video and then to post it. And then we actually used that video in the exhibition itself as, a, as documentation. There was no professional videographer on hand, so we wanted to see and almost capture the chaos of this event from the ground. So it was a really different way for us to use social media than, than we had even imagined.
0: Right, um, I think we only have a few minutes left before um, David and Dia have to run into another meeting. So I'm gonna um, jump to uh, ask some questions about um, the expansion of the museum. Um, what are some of the identity or branding and mission challenges that uh, your department is facing as a result of the expansion?
1: Well, the entire museum is facing a huge branding and identity uh reinvention with this um you know we're going from being a small museum that people find very easy to miss to a beautiful new structure that is going to be impossible for people to miss and you know we're still in the very early stages of figuring out exactly how we're going to use social media to get us through this but certainly you know we've been at the groundbreaking ceremony. We posted a lot of stuff about that, and we're, you know, looking forward to putting up regular uh, updates on the progress through these social media outlets, so that it builds all kinds of uh, excitement as we get closer. But to be honest, we we're only in the early stages of formulating this new um, this new um, identity. I mean, we're still trying to figure it out ourselves internally, and we know that. You know, we'd like to include some of the visitor you know, the visitor and larger um, digital communities' input into how we should proceed. It's just a matter of how to do that and how much power to give them and, and really how to come to terms with um, the fact that as an institution we're facing an identity crisis because we've been so based on um, acute programming, and now we're going to have different needs with this larger space and different opportunities. But that said, you know, there is definitely going to be more integration of media into the galleries and social media into the visitor experience. And we're not going to be able to succeed in the new building with this expansion unless we really ramp up our social media efforts and come up with a comprehensive strategy. So that's a long way of saying we don't know what we're doing yet, but we're going to do something.
0: (laughs) Okay. Um, Is there um, like particular audiences that you're targeting um, uh, in regards to advertising the museum's expansion?
1: The expansion itself, I don't know that, you know, right now the expansion is really being targeted to potential funders and corporate funders and um, people that we don't necessarily direct our programming to because, you know, our programming is – all about community engagement and our, the ideas that we're trying to push forth are to become the most community-engaged art museum in the country, and that doesn't necessarily lend itself to um, reaching out to the, you know, the big benefactors that you see with names on the walls of other larger institutions. However, what we're trying to do is to market the expansion as an opportunity for uh, these more mainstream um, funders to help us transform the model of what a museum can be. But as far as audiences, we know we're going to need to do more of everything and that there are plenty of people that are traveling to New York City that are here for a finite amount of time who wouldn't come to the museum now but who wouldn't want to miss the museum after. So the idea that we can use social media to reach out uh, beyond the local visitation is really exciting to us and really integral in, in our planning for that um, and that said, you know, we, we really also have to figure out a way to um, increase the overall following online and then translate it into even more people coming to the museum because when you are doubling in size, it means that if your audience remains the same, it's going to look like the museum is even emptier. So we're going to need to figure out how to do that as well. It's one of the biggest challenges we have right now.
0: Right. Um, it's almost 10:20. I think I should let you guys go, right? And
1: have a, uh, you know, we can take one or two final questions if you have, you
0: know. Um, okay. In Any, that you know, case. That, that
1: you want uh, us to elaborate on.
0: Um, I actually wonder, like, how do you guys deal with, um, negative feedback on the internet? Like, uh, both on your official channels and also, like, um, negative feedback that is floating in the outside larger internet world.
2: I think if it's, I mean, we never censor our feedback unless it's like obviously spam or it's offensive or it's, you know, uh, derogatory language. But other than that, we kind of, we don't welcome it, but we respond to it as part of a dialogue about. You know, if it's about something negative about an event we had or a program right. we're doing, we kind of try to offer the counter of why we're doing it.
1: Right, and, it, and that comes in different forms. I mean, a lot of it is DIA just handling it, you know, directly. But in certain situations where, you know, where somebody is, is – there have been situations where uh, a reporter or something has used has really misunderstood the breadth or depth of a project – and in those situations, we've been able to use our social media to have the director of the museum write a little retort to that and just send it out to the world. You know, many of you may have seen this article in the New York Times yesterday. I just want to correct X, Y, and Z and to explain why we're doing this. And that that has been really effective for us. But as far as, you know, ever silencing anybody, that's completely antithetical to to what we're trying to do, so we would never go in that regard. However, we, you know, just to I know we have two minutes left. We wanted to also talk about from the inside, you know, and how the, how many voices we have inside the museum, and that's something that we're trying to deal with right now. You know, as anybody following from the outside would see is is that it's Dia's voice that's used on the Twitter feed and on the Facebook posts and all that, and there have been requests from within the museum staff to have more voices added. And to that regard, you know, the folks in the education department, and there are a lot of different educational initiatives that we have, and the curatorial department, and we really want to um, to empower them. So right now we're working on coming up with a blog structure that will allow those voices to be shared because there's so much stuff. You know, we believe that there's so much stuff Inside the museum that we're doing on a daily basis, that people outside would really love to hear about, and it's just a matter of um, getting our own internal staff ready to to understand how to share it with the outside world. And many of our staff members do have personal uh, Twitter feeds that are talking about some of the stuff they're doing at work, and that's great. So now we're just going to expand it out so that you know you can hear about what our art therapists are doing or what our uh, you know the head of our New New Yorkers, our program for our adult immigrants, is up to. Or you can have the curator of the next exhibition, you know, answer you know, questions. answer your questions or talking time to time about the project she's working on. Or our registrar can you know pull a curious object out of the collection vault from time to time and share it with people that while it can't be put up in the galleries, we can put it on this virtual gallery. So. It's really, right now, we're thinking about a multiplicity of voices because the museum has such a diverse staff as well, and we want all those different opinions out there, and we want all those different voices to be shared with the audience so that it reflects the audience interests, and it also reflects the interests of the people that are working here, including the director. We really want him to, to get out there. He's such an accessible guy and has such myriad interests that I think, you know, the audiences outside the museum would love to hear. I mean, if if you could be a fly on the wall at our staff meetings, you would come away with a lot of entertaining and really intellectual stuff that I think people should, should be aware of. So in closing, get ready for more voices from the <laughs> Queens Museum.
0: Right. Um, I'm just going to follow up with a very short question. So, like, are people inside a museum, like your colleagues, are they open and positive about this, or do they feel like this is, like, additional workload that um, they don't really have time to take on?
1: Both. Both. Um, I mean, for some departments, I mean, the education department and the public events department, I think by their nature they're more engaging. They're always working face-to-face with people. So they really want to jump into this. The curatorial department, though, I know Dia's has had some yeah, um, I frustrations think, with
2: I think fundamentally the curatorial department is about protecting the artist. So once we, we figure out a, a way to streamline, will the artist participate in what way? How fast can we get them on board? then the curatorial department will be on board as well, with sharing studio visits or sharing behind the scenes with the installations. And the, but it's really that is, I think, the big holdup with that.
0: Right. Um, I think I better let you guys go running to the other okay. meeting now. Well, the yeah. other
1: thing is that, you know, while we're out of time now, if anybody who's listening to this um, wants to email us, you know, our con- right. you guys have our contact information. We'll be happy to answer a couple of questions via email.
3: That's great.
1: And there, certain- you know, there's
3: also going to be a blog post that Angie's going to write with a link to the recording, and then the students will comment on that. So we'll make sure you have that link if you want to follow up with their comments or questions. Okay. Yep.
1: Yeah. yeah. And obviously, yep. anybody who is ever in New York City, definitely come by the Queens Museum, and you know, we'd be happy to talk to you more about this or show you around whatever it is
3: wonderful thank you so much yeah
1: thanks guys
0: thanks for your time really yeah
1: all right bye-bye
0: okay bye